Welcome back to Human Reaction. This is part two of a two-part series that we just decided to divide into two parts because uh, we are tasked with really trying to understand the depth and complexity of the situation that's going on between Israel and Palestine. The previous episode uh, was really all about the backstory, the complex interplay of a lot of different uh, factors that are honestly almost too variable and, and uh, voluminous and multitude to really even completely understand in a 90 minute episode. But from here on, we're going to dive into some mental models that you've put together to help people conceptualize and think about ways to approach this topic that will help them help us all retain rationality, avoid falling into common traps that might make us susceptible to manipulation as these topics are talked about in the public square. So That's right. why don't we start with the first one? Yeah. So if, uh, yeah. And, and then um, a couple of things, we're going to talk about the history here. So if you haven't listened to the first one, definitely listen to the first one. All right. Cause it's gonna, I'm going to tease, I'm going to use arguments that are used in the Israeli Palestine debate as the, without trying to agree or disagree, or even engage in the fact finding of that, but rather to tear apart what's wrong with those uh, and some of the bad mental models that inform them. Um, and then um, just, just a quick reminder, a mental model is think of it like a low resolution picture of the world that you use to navigate the world, right? Think of it as a mental map, maybe how to get to what you want using fundamental things that are true, Right. So you, you look at a field, you don't know how to get across the field. You have to make a plan based upon your means and your ends to get to that place. So what we're trying to say is here are some ways to think about this situation uh, and principles that you can use, mental models, mental maps of the world that will help you navigate it. Make sense? Absolutely. All right. So the first one is what I have lovingly dubbed Liam's maxim, and that is the moral outrage alone is insufficient to create sound foreign policy. Uh, last episode, we really framed up a big disclaimer at the beginning to be like, hey, we got to lower the emotional temperature if we're going to talk about this in a rational way. Um, and this is part of the, you know, how do we learn from the war on terror question? After 9-11, we were very emotional. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about how unified we suddenly were. Um, I don't know if you have memories of this, but I do of just being outside and everyone had an American flag outside their door for the first time I'd ever seen or then or since. Yeah. Um, and how that led to the worst people in our social order or our politicians uh, deciding to create the Patriot Act. Right. And, and the good guys voted against it and the bad guys voted for it. Right. Ultimately, and some of the, some of the people were bad guys and then they realized it later and then they changed right that's the best kind of guy right um but we lost ourselves in our unified moment in our collective you know like i can't believe this happened moment and it was taken advantage of by people seeking power so uh, vivek was on tucker carlson and uh gave a, a interview about this and he said quote what policy decisions we make will be separate from the moral judgments we will pass end quote that's a really great formulation. What that means is that something can be really t 
terrible, but not be a sound foreign policy decision, such as the passing of the Patriot Act or the invasion of Iraq based upon the terrible actions in 9-11. It isn't realistic to expect us to make rational decisions when we are emotional. Um, The foreign policy of the United States should start with what is in the best interests of keeping Americans safe uh, in America, right? We can't keep Americans safe all over the globe because that is an unending commitment there that's, you know, dangerous, right? We don't want to, but at the same time, like the State Department exists for a reason, right? We should do what we can to get um, uh, the uh, prisoners that Hamas has taken from America out. Uh, That could even mean violence to do so, right? I mean, Hamas are bad guys are very much willing to do that um, with special operations or whatever. But keeping in mind that like we want to beware of finding ourselves being falling into a regional war over something as, you know, tenuous as, well, Iran supports Hamas sometimes in the past and they have a relationship that's done by Hamas. And Lindsey Graham wants to bomb Iran and has for two decades now and is now using this as a justification. Maybe we need to slow down a little bit and make sure that we're making the decision based upon a defined, realistic, and restrained vision of American interest and what we can actually do as a country and what was actually in our, in our best uh, interest. Um, another part of that is that keeping in mind that any decision is not made in a short run time frame. Foreign policy, by definition, is an infinite game. So that means the game doesn't end, right? A great book by um, Simon Sinek called The Infinite Game. Basically, what it shows is that by living by your principles, you're more likely to play the game than if you just live for profits as a company, right? It's better to set a mission that that is noble and good and then shoot for that mission and profits are secondary or a consequence of that uh, because it allows, because profits are just quarterly, right? Or just yearly or whatever. Um, And it allows for much better profits in the long run if you have a clear mission that you can live by. America, a similar, very similar story. You shouldn't just live for the short run, like solving the initial like urgency of the moment question. You need to be sure that your foreign policy adds into a long-term vision of American peace, prosperity, and uh, success. Well, it seems like right now, or, you know, for the the past, I mean, the modern era, I would say American foreign policy has had a mission, but it hasn't been in service to peace and prosperity. It's been in service to increasing the size and scope of American hegemony, right? American militaristic, political and economic influence around the world, which perhaps has led us to, into some of the, the more, um, you know, really troublesome conflicts that we've been in for many years. I mean, Afghanistan and Iraq being a, a prime example. Yeah. I mean, like the, I mean, even better than that is the, is the Ukraine war, right? I mean, like the, the desire to expand NATO when there isn't an opponent, right. To the point where we make Russia our opponent is a good example of like American foreign policy as a hegemony first American security and pro- peace and prosperity second. Yeah. Right. Where we literally walking up to the brink of nuclear war in order to put pressure to degrade Russia's military. For what purpose? In order to degrade Russia's military. We don't need an explanation past that, according to Lindsey Graham, you know, or um, Tim Scott. So, And it's almost a, a manufactured moral outrage against Russia that is being used to substantiate and rationalize and justify 
this conflict. Right. right. Well, I mean, like, look, I mean, I understand where people in the initial invasion were outraged, right? I mean, this is... Well, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, and, but just the broader conversation around Russia as the enemy. Like, why is Russia the enemy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and non lack of justification or really understanding why we want to re- reduce their, their military. Why would, why, would we, <laughs> why would we invite Ukraine to this, into NATO knowing that it would create this response because we had the warns. John Mearsheimer had warned for years and years and years how disaster it was to march NATO uh, eastward, and they did it anyways. So um, number two, mental models. Understanding evil does not imply you condone evil. So putting this in the American context most clearly, right now we can talk about 9-11 with some distance, right? It's not a fresh wound. You know, time has healed that a little bit. But there was a time frame when saying, hey, in fact, you know, the Ron, Ron Paul Giuliani moment is a great example of where this pivoted for a lot of people, saying, hey, they attacked us for a reason and it wasn't for our freedom. It was because we were over there killing and, and maiming their people, mm-hmm. right? There was, there was the political incentive, right, which was the uh, bombings in Iraq, the um, blockade in Iraq that resulted in, according to some estimates, 500,000 mostly children death that motivated them to do it. Now understanding that doesn't mean you support it, right? Doesn't understanding the serial killers incentive or why they do what they do. We dramatize this all the time, right? The great investigator who gets in the mind of the bad guy. And so he can catch him in foreign policy. We have to do that in order to understand and come up with good strategies to fight the person from where they're at, right? Where, where do we head them off to where they want to go? So the best response to 9-11 was not to tear apart American society by implementing a massive in, um, an intelligence state with the NSA. Making us hate and distrust our own government wasn't a good strategic response to 9-11. I think people, a lot of people would agree with that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, invading Iraq was a total, terrible waste. Um, I'm not, that doesn't mean I like Saddam Hussein. And there was a point in American history not too long ago where if you said that, yeah, a lot of people would feel, once again, room temperature IQ people would really quickly say, what do you, if you like Iraq so much, why don't you move there or something? Right. Well, I mean, to bring it into the modern context of Ukraine and Russia, which kind of we were just talking about, just asking questions around, well, you know, why is Russia the enemy? Uh, understanding that NATO was, was perceived as a provocation uh, by Russia, um, you know, a provocation uh, you know, NATO perpetrating against Russia doesn't mean that that you uh, think Putin is a good guy. Yeah, or that the or even that the invasion was justified, right. or that the invasion was a good thing, or any of those sort of things. Like, of course, uh, um, you know, you can understand it without saying you morally condone it. That's the point. Uh, and then uh, in the last mental model, we failed to actually apply it to uh, Israel Hamas, so we probably should. <laughs> so understanding Hamas's incentive and the plight of the Palestinians does not mean that you endorse the slaughtering of innocents, of course. And anyone who says so is conducting the worst kind of collectivist thought, right? Of um, religious thought of saying, hey, you're not part of my group. Why aren't you part of my group? Be part of my group or, or we're, we're, we're going to have words, you know, like that, that turning off of the brain is really dangerous. And we're trying to fight against that, right? And that's, that's the goal in this moment is to you, you you can you can recognize the utter evil of something and feel that emotion, but then you have to let it go. Yeah, 
because if you let it guide you, you could do terrible things. You become the monster. Yeah. I want to bring up here too, that, uh, there are people who I'm, whom I tremendously respect who I am seeing right now falling victim to that. Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson, yeah. namely amongst them. I mean, his tweet about go get them all, like send them all to hell or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. tweeting at Benjamin Netanyahu to, to basically just level Palestine. It, it, I mean, is so wholly unbecoming of a guy with the intellect that he has and with the ability to, to parse really complex subjects and make them not just understandable to common people like myself, uh, but to inspire people to something better. It's, in some ways, it's kind of ironic because I would almost credit him for helping me to to come around to a place of thinking clearly and incisively in this way, and yet watching him fall victim to it is 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 something that's like really disappointing. Yeah. But in, but in some way, you I mean, obviously, you don't agree with anyone 100 percent of the time, and this is somewhere where I'm very clearly, and I think you as well. Many many of us have very clearly identified a a flaw in his ability to separate emotion from a rational analysis of a situation. Yeah. I mean, I mean, at least like I get it. If you're saying go get Hamas, go get the evil people who did this. Yeah. But just carpet bombing an entire country is not that. And, 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 and and I'm, there are worse actors in this space than Jordan Peterson. Oh, for sure. Sean Hannity. for example. (laughs) Yeah. But that doesn't suggest that he shouldn't be held to a high standard, especially with the audience he has. I mean, I broke myself this week thinking about how best to talk about this and we'll get 150 people to watch it, maybe. <laughs> you know? And as I'm like and killing we, myself. And we thank you all yes, for watching. You. Join the Discord. So, <laughs> but, but, to, but to just like very frivolously just put out, you know, like Nikki Haley did or Jordan Peterson or any of these other people just be like, okay, time to take them all out. You know, and like, and if what you mean is like these people, okay, then you need to be careful about your words. And speak the truth, but do so carefully. That's what I've been trying to do this whole time. That's what I tried to do in the last part in the series. So, Well, number three, before we get to it, yeah. really does remind me so much of things that I've learned from Jordan Peterson that it makes it sting a little bit more mm-hmm. even. Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. That's a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. How many people are you willing to kill to get justice against the evil people who perpetrated the surprise attack against the people of Israel this October? How many innocent people are you willing to? And you say, well, I'm not responsible for any of that. At what point are you becoming the monster that you're seeking to kill? At what point is you allowing that to happen? The most important moral question that you have to ask about yourself. And I'm not saying this to judge the folks in Israel. I'm not really trying to, what I'm trying to do is say, this is the critical question on, of all people and all time when dealing with evil. How do you differentiate what you are versus that thing in your methods to fight it? And I think this is particularly bad um, that both sides use this error. So a bunch of people, when I just said that right now says, Oh, so you're on the hot side of Hamas. No, I think Hamas is making this error too. They say because of the conditions in Palestine, we are justified in committing evil. And then Israel says, because of the evil you just committed, we are justified in killing people too. 
And I'm not saying people, some people don't have to die. I'm not a pacifist. I'm very much willing to use violence to repel force. I'm very much willing to use violence to get justice. The question is, when you have two and a half million people that have largely been ignored for a very long time um, as a diplomatic and political and international problem, and then this happens, are we going to get to the place where we're actually trying to solve this problem in a way that's sustainable? Right? A lot of ink has been spilled on the options here. And we just, at some point in the mid-2000s, just said, we're just going to give up on this and just like put it in the freezer and just hopefully they go, the problem goes away and they haven't. And that doesn't mean they're justified. Once again, it just means you've got to deal with the dragon that's under your bed that's eating you alive. And like, and make sure that in slaying the dragon, to put it all in Jordan Peterson's words, right? <laughs> you don't become a worse kind of monster. And like, and like you say, oh, that's, that's so easy to, for you to do in your comfort where you're at up in Montana. And I would suggest, yeah, you, you got me. You got me. I don't have to make the hard decision there. It's not my, 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 my people at play. But I do, I, I've, I've made a discipline of trying to think carefully about the moral problems of the world that everyone faces. If I, if this was the 1850s and I lived in Montana and I had this problem in my backyard with the native Americans, how would I behave? How would I inscribe the best people from that time, looking back with the distance of history behaved? And would I, would I, at what point would I be willing to justify something terrible because of my people group? That would be an error. That is the fundamental of the collectivist error. So what is the solution to that error? Well, it's, it's the methodological individualism, right? That's, uh, and this is kind of importing a praxeological idea uh, from Ludwig von Mises, right? The, the uh, progenitor of the name of the podcast, right? Praxeology being the study of human action, correct? Yeah, that, that only humans act. Groups don't act. And uh, this area of Israel-Palestine, but it's, it's true in foreign policy in general. This, it, absolutely. And it's true anytime you're talking about ethnic strife, right? When you talk about black America and the black American experience, for example, you run into collectivist errors all the time, right? Um, on both sides of the issue. The difficulty is how to tease apart a state where individuals act, but they're motivated by collective groups, right? Because humans organize into groups, right? Um, there's a criticism of uh, methodological individualism that treats people like atoms, right? As if we're not interacting with other groups, right? But people have groups, but those are secondary order effects for motivation, the fundamental motivation is individual and the fundamental, and the only actor is individual, right? Meaning I put my individual actions through the lens of the group I belong to, but it can't make me act. I still choose. In fact, I would suggest that you can't have any moral calculus, meaning you can't have any determination of justice unless you think that, that the individual acts. Because if groups can act, then the prison guard can get out of his responsibility for Auschwitz. If groups can act, then the people who... Um, there's no individual responsibility to say no. You're a Palestinian in Gaza and you're one of the good guys and you're just a media guy who's actually a liberal and you want to see a one-state solution. You have an ambition and a mental model. Um, you want to be seen. You want to be treated as different than the Hamas, right? And, you, and, and, and I don't know who that person is, right? And I'm not saying that Israel knows or anyone knows, but we want to make sure we don't make the error that consolidates the group down, like group guilt down from the worst actors of that group. Does that make sense? And I, and I mean this too as an instruction 
and a warning to the Palestinian and, and to the Hamas as well, right? Is that that idea that Israeli is the Israeli people are their government, right? This is in the last episode we talked about it as the uh, Osama bin Laden argument, which is that you elected the government and you're a democracy, therefore you own all the actions of that government, and therefore I can punish you as you know for for those actions. Um, when you look at collective punishment as just being like the fundamental on both sides of an issue that doesn't that 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 is the as far as i can tell the historical record right and so when people say hey both sides are just awful here about this issue we gotta they gotta fix this i i i understand uh from both sides there that there's a complication there right the complication from israel the israeli side is in order to do individual punishment for these people we have to differentiate the good guys and the bad guys we don't always have the intel to do that uh, we don't, we specifically coordinated off Gaza in order to make our people more safe, but that gave up part of being able to know what's going on in Gaza, right? It makes it more difficult. Um, at least that's, that's some of the um, uh, things I read about the Israeli perception about this problem. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. So back to mental model number three, you know, not becoming the monster that you are trying to fight. We talked earlier about, you know, if there are two different sets of rules of engagement for either side, right, which has happened in various other conflicts throughout history, do you not put yourself at risk of being taken advantage of if you hold yourself to a higher moral standard than your, your enemy? What, what happens then? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing. So imagine a quick thought experiment. What, what if Hamas didn't go into the kibbutzes or the music festival? What if all they did was overrun the military areas around there and, and you know, take soldiers and harm soldiers, kill soldiers? That would still be a terrible thing. Sure. But it would be an act of war. Yeah. Right. You could understand that as an act of war. Um, men with guns fighting other men with guns in order to establish a monopoly of power in a particular geographic area. Now, from my point of view, that is wrong and always bad, and we should try to avoid that at all costs. But there's a certain place where you can understand it. The minute you get to the place where you're killing civilians and innocents and children, then you get, you're entering into a whole different realm, right? What, did I lose your question? What was your say, say nope. again? I uh, just, you know, wh- wh- how do you weigh the, the various moral standards that you might hold yourself to? If you're, if you're, right sticking to a very clear set of rules of engagement that are more restrictive than your opponent. For, for example, you know, the, the human shield situation, Yeah. you know, what, how do you, how do you, how are you supposed to navigate yeah. that? And that's, that's an interesting question. I, I, I do get it. Like it's, it's a very difficult question. It's a, it's a conundrum. You have this issue of sometimes human shields are legitimate human shields, right? Where the Hamas is intentionally putting their, base of operations in a, in a, in a hospital. Other times um, you have 2.5 million people in a very small geographic area. 
where do you put your Hamas base? You just you just supposed to stand on the hillside. Right. Keep in mind these people are at, at it, you have armed opposition groups here, right? Um, and just to be clear, because I don't want people to misunderstand what you just said. You said sometimes human shields are legitimate human shields. You're not you're not advocating for or oh, defending. No. no, I mean like that that someone use yeah. a human shield. But I that, mean the that condemnation like, of human shield is legitimate. right. Sometimes like that is actually what is occurring, and sometimes yeah. it's just incredibly difficult to differentiate combatant from civilian. Right, right, right. And so and and so the in in the danger there of becoming the monster is where you say we are not responsible in any case for the actions that we perpetrate that harm civilians because our motivation we know is pure. Well, I'm sorry but your motivation isn't always pure. There's a group of people in Israel who really don't want to see the Palestinians exist at all. I can go online right now and I can find videos of people saying, we got to turn the entire place into glass. And you can find those videos going all the way back to the, from the origin of the internet. Like this isn't, this isn't just happening in response to this. This is a philosophy that's existed. Uh, and it is a gaining philosophy in Israel. And that's, this is an objective fact. I found tons of left-wing or, you know, organizations who are the good guys in this fight trying to say we need to get to a diplomatic solution because we are slowly losing ground every single election cycle, in part just because of birth rates. Hmm. Um, Left-wingers don't have as many kids and right-wingers have more. So they're getting outbred. And you're speaking about in Israel? In Israel. Israeli citizens. Who, and that's just why we're seeing Israel become more and more left-wing. At least that was an explanation that I read. Why Israel's become more and more right-wing over time and more and more aggressive about this Palestine mm. problem. Mm-hmm. So, so more and more towards the, uh, the extreme end of wanting to eliminate Palestine altogether and swinging more and more towards that perspective and right. less towards a moderate perspective within their political paradigm, more extreme would be rightward and more moderate would be leftward. Is right. That, right. Right. Interpreting right. right. That? As far as like, yeah, rightward meaning in this case, um, get rid of the Palestinians by literally like, if you got a party group that doesn't even recognize that they have a right to exist on either side of the issue, whether it's Hamas in the 1980s or the Likud party right now, you have a huge problem, right? You can't get to peace. If, if, if you have people, and this is another area of media manipulation, saying Hamas is currently, you know, charter in 1980. Well, wait a minute. They have a charter right now. What does the charter right now say? The charter right now says a two-state solution. Now, you could say, well, that's just a manipulation. They're the same people. They're the same. Well, actually, they're not the same people. That was a generation ago. <laughs> Yeah. Give mind, half the population are young people here. Uh, a tremendous amount of the people who committed this, these crimes were like 16-year-olds to like early 20s. Very young-looking people. Well, we don't know, but you're looking at them, you're like, what the? Young man with gun, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, their recruitment is, um, especially for the most radical wings, and on top of that, we tend to treat, treat Gaza like it's a uniform. This is another collectivist era. Like it's like, only Hamas, right? There are all kinds of political factions in Gaza. You can get online and you can find them. Um, all right. I want to give you an example of some policies of the uh, collective stuff. We talked about it last episode. Uh, you're an injured man in Gaza and you can't get medical permit to leave Gaza uh, for treatment of your broken leg because your relative is a member of Hamas. And we talked about it last time as a, as a work permit. Mm-hmm. That's a problem too, but it's also medical. Right? or any other reason to leave this area. Um, another example is a peaceful protester goes to a protest where other people say things Israelis don't like and is shot to deter protesting. And that is the, according to some reports, correct me if I'm wrong here, looked at it, tried to find 
countervailing information could not, that that was a actual um, uh, a policy. And then lastly, you know, if you, there is no excuse on collectivist grounds for harming innocent people in order to punish Israel as a nation, right? Because people are not their ideas. They're not their government. They're not those things. They are individuals, right? So that error is just absolutely everywhere through here. And it is, it is the rejection of that error that I think will actually get us to something reasonable. Um, another one that you see that I want to warn people of is the people of Palestine were the people till the 1970s or 1960s. This is a technical, it's a legalism, right? People lived in Palestine, which was the Roman name for the area. It was also called Judah, Judea. It was also called Israel. It's called many different names. The legalism argument is always there and it's always to distill. And sometimes by some actors, it appears to me to be a way to say people who live there aren't, don't deserve individual treatment as a people, right? There are, well, well I can't remember what it's called. Um, there are people without a nation and a nation without a people, right? That idea is just like, it looks like dehumanizing to me, right? If you say, oh, well, they were uh, the people who lived in Palestine before this time period, they didn't have contract law and they didn't have all these things. And so therefore it was okay for some Israelis to take their land or something like that. How do you treat the Lakota or the Cherokee or the Little Shell or any of the Native American tribes that had very different institutions from white settlers? And yet we recognize today that that was a problem because it happened 100 years ago. Now, the Palestine, now, it's even worse was, was when if Jewish people say, well, you guys did it and you guys benefited from it. Why can't we do it? <laughs> right. And I'm like, well, you have to learn the lesson of history, which is that that was evil then and it's still evil today. And the best people then. We're like Frederick Douglass saying, this is wrong. You know, and, and you can't, you're, you're trying to say, okay, what is the axioms of moral action that allow people to navigate the future so that we get better over time? Not so that we can just constantly use the past to justify, you know, the, 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 the tyrannies and terrible things we might do in the present in order to gain an upper hand. And don't get me wrong, Hamas is this too. Uh, uh, for example, uh, seeing this only as Jews invading Palestine removes a tremendous amount of um, uh, important information like the Holocaust and like the European pogroms and like all the reasons why Jews would want a nation for themselves. And I understand that. The aim is perfectly understandable, the Zionist aim. It's the means that matter. How do you get to the thing that you're trying to do? And we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, and lastly, and this is, um, this is a particular concern because this is, this was like one of the first people I looked to was I was trying, I did my best to try to find what is the best person on the history here. And I found, uh, Coleman Hughes, who is a, a very reputable guy who uses very high quality resources all the time. And he's, he's gotten into a big controversy about a Ted talk he did on colorblindness, for example, he's a black man. And he talks about this issue of racial equality and kind of pushing back against the Imram X Kendi type anti-racist point of view. And he had this guy on and he talked about Israel-Palestine before all this stuff happened. And he was like, this guy is one to criticize Israel. He's like the best, like most neutral guy. And he made this argument. And I, and I want you to just thought experiment real quick, looking at this, where is the error? There are 25 Arab countries and only one Jewish country. Therefore, the Arabs should live in one of the other Arab countries, meaning the Palestinians should go to one of the Arab countries. Now, this has a big historical you know, reference to it, which is the founding war, the war of independence. And what we talked about in the last one, which was 
Then during the War of Independence, there's this huge 700,000 to 800,000, 600,000, something like that, um, movement of Palestinians out of the area that we call Israel right now into the surrounding areas that were at times, sometimes taken in, sometimes in permanent refugee camps and other times rejected by those Arab countries. And some people take that as a reason to say, well, it's, it's out of our hands. The Arabs wouldn't take the Arabs as if these Palestinians had no property right to the land that they lived, resided on as if the vagaries of the Ottoman empire's contract law system or absentee ownership somehow had anything to do with the morality of a man is working on a farm and you came to that village and you wiped the village out or you wiped the village next door out and he ran off so he wouldn't get wiped out too. Right? Like that moral underpinning, I don't see how you escape that as anything other than just absolutely reprehensible and treating the Palestinians because they're Muslims as the same as Muslims in Jordan or the same as Muslims in Egypt is just, you know, it's just collectivism. It doesn't, it doesn't recognize any of the things that matter to them or their decision-making framework. It just says that what you think is most important about them, their, their, the fact that they're Muslim, is the most important thing. And that's collectivism. It's just collectivist thought. We reject that and we go with individualism. It very big, quickly becomes, oh, okay, I can understand why an individual in this circumstance would act the way they do, right? And, or why uh, the, we hold individuals accountable for what they do, not the people groups that they belong to. Because any one of those individuals would have a good reason for not going to Jordan, right? Or if they're in Jordan and in a concentration, not a concentration camp, I'm sorry, in a um, refugee camp for 60 years, why they'd want to go back. And if you say they don't get to go back, why? Because Israel won this land in the Six-Day War, and therefore it's theirs now. You're like, well, wait a minute. You know, you can't just take stuff, <laughs> right? I mean... You laugh, but it's like, it's it's a terrible tragedy. Like you're you're over here and you're saying this, this is what they mean by right of return. What they mean is that there's these people in these, um, in both in Gaza and the West Bank and in Lebanon and in Syria and in Jordan that are saying, hey, we got our, our grandfather got kicked off and we're, we lived on this plot of land here and we want to go back and you guys won't let us. So how, how would you, what would you say to someone who, who said, well, history is, replete with situations like this where a conquering force takes land from a you know another entity tribe country people what have you they don't give it back i mean how how do we how are we to compare this when again you know with native american tribes for example they were removed from ancestral lands and not really allowed to return put on reservations etc you know how do you how do you look at at that and sort of reconcile that. Yeah. It's, it's like, do, does, if you're attacked first, does it give you right to conquer land? I want someone to tell me that, yeah, yeah, that's what it means. You know? And then like, okay, how do you read history now? Who's the good guys? Right. Once you, once you embrace that principle that might makes right, just because other people did in the past, how do you evolve from there to a, to a moral standing? So at some point you're saying at some point you have to transcend that way of thinking. Right. If, if you're going to have peace, if you're going to establish a rules-based liberal order, at least a part of it is, a, is an accusation of hypocrisy. If you're going to say you're the liberal democracy, you don't get to steal. If you're going to say you're the civilized group, you don't get to take stuff from people. Now you might say, hey, we don't take stuff from people. We try to buy it. And then when they don't or something like that, like you could make those arguments and I'm open to those arguments. I'm open to being wrong. But I mean, 
it's it's a it's a very difficult claim to be able to say, oh well, they. What's funny about the Six Day War too? Is isn't it like they attacked and then they responded? It was like they were building up forces and Israel attacked, even more murky. And then they take ground. They say, well, we need this ground in order to protect ourselves. Maybe. I think there is a moral dimension to, I took this ground in order to protect myself. Um, because like it's strategic, right? Like the Golan Heights are example of that right now, right? You take that ground in order to pretend to protect yourself from further incursion, any additional future incursion from Syria. Um, that might be a case. I'm actually open to that, right? Uh, let's boil it down to a, like a moral matrix that people can understand that isn't geopolitical or, or tribal like this. You can get into a fist fight with somebody. Um, they look like they're going to swing at you, but you intercept them and you knock them out. Do you get to take this stuff in their wallet? No. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if that means... And what's even worse than that is it wasn't their wallet. It was the land of the Palestinians, a complete third party here. If you're invaded by Egypt, um, you don't get to take someone else's land from somebody else at minimum, right? To protect yourself. It would be like getting knocked out and then someone else runs up and takes your wallet while you're knocked out. Right. Um, the, or, or just like you, you, you're getting in a fight with me. You're going to build up. You're going to swing. I knock you out. And then I go to someone else and I knock them out and I take his wallet and I take your wallet and I take, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> you start and then I'm it. like, I'm, I win, you know, I, 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 I now call that just, yeah. and you're like, well, it's just by the rules of, of how all nations are founded. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's not the standard, is it? Especially post world war two, we're supposed to have the United Nations at this point. That's a, that's a, that's against the rules of warfare, right? We banned that. It's specifically like, War in Iraq, for example, we couldn't just make Iraq a, a 51st state. Why? Because that's against the, the international rules order. We had to make them an independent state separate from us and specifically guarantee their independence with the UN recognized elections and all that kind of stuff. We went through that formal process because we don't, we're not supposed to abide by those rules anymore. Uh, and, and then the same thing is like, you're going to say you're part of the rules-based international order as a country and then say, well, yeah, but we can do collective punishment. That's supposed to be against the rules. Right. And, and I don't think, and I've, and I looked at it, I didn't see any part where that said, unless they do it and then it's okay. Unless they do it first. Right. Yeah. Um, so this, this is a, this is an ends versus means question too. Right. So the, your ends can't justify your means. That's a fundamental philosophical error because if you don't make your means compatible with your underlying principles, you're likely to go astray, right? Um, what do I mean by that? So like the method that I use to accomplish my vision, I'll have a motivation for my vision, the thing that I want to do. And then if I use things that are contrary to the underlying principles of my vision, my means, or if I justify my, my ends with my means, then that means I can do anything, right? So you want to constrain the, your, the how you do stuff how you accomplish your goals with available pathways that are compatible with those goals and with your underlying political philosophy. So for example, if you want to be a culture that doesn't condone murder of civilians, then you should not conduct warfare at any point in a way that uses murder of civilians as a tactic to get 
what you want, mm -hmm. right? And that isn't to say that, that there, and I'm not trying to do a prescription for Hamas and Palestine right there. No. I'm just laying down a fundamental moral principle and saying, how does it apply here? Yeah. You need to justify that person who wants to blow up a building, right? And then a different circumstance, if it's the march to return, how do you handle peaceful protests? For sure. Right? Because it's very clear, you know, that, that there were an error there with no accountability whatsoever from what I could tell from either culturally in the media or anything like that. Or if you are um, conducting operations right now in, in Gaza, right? If you're conducting operations right now in Gaza, how to make that clear is, well, it's very different dropping a bomb on an area of that's heavily populated, not by your fault, Israel, not by the fault of Palestine, but by just that's the facts, how to handle that, right? So the best is when is when they handle that well, right? And that should be celebrated. When they say, hey, we, we, we tell them to get out and we give them the avenue and we shoot them text messages to tell them to get out of the building and stuff like that. Okay, um, that's a good thing. And that's why that's good. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, but when you look at the history, there's another historical argument, right? Going back to the war in independence that that same guy made, which is, of course, Israel had to explain bail 700,000 Palestinians. They wanted to be a democracy and they couldn't be a Jewish state if all if they gave all of those people the enfranchisement, meaning the right to vote. So they had to do what they had to do. That's the ends justify the means calculation. So to, to clarify this, we're talking about Israel wanting to be a, a Jewish state mm -hmm. fundamentally, like as the mandate of sort of the Zionist goal, mm -hmm. right? The fact that there were Palestinians in the country, as many as there were, meant that if it was a democracy, those Palestinians would be the majority uh, population and would, could effectively outvote the Jewish population in what they were desiring to be a Jewish state. So they expelled those Palestinians in service to the ends of creating a Jewish state. Unfortunately, that's how this historian justified it. Interesting. Right. And, and like, it's weird to the American ear, right? Because yeah. like we think of democracy as like an open-ended, bottom-up process of like enfranchisement of the individual. And then like whatever the aggregate result is, that's not anyone's particular. That's the good thing, right? Is that we all combine our wills in this like way that's very mysterious the melting pot. Yeah. And it results in the, in the government results in, and whatever it is, at least it's a vision of the popular will. That's the, that's the mythos, the, the, the dream of democracy mm -hmm. and the way that, you know, unfortunately the way this guy justifies it is, you know, the one, he never mentions the villages completely wiped out by the Israelis at this time to inspire the 700,000 people leaving number, crime. Number one. Right. Um, and then number two, that the ends he is using to justify those are completely undemocratic, right? So beware of ends justify the means calculation. And, and, and then inverse to that, embrace a mental model, the alternative, which is that the ends means compliance guarantees the ends, meaning the degree to which your, the, 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 your methods comply with your underlying principles of moral and ethics and thinking that, you know, you hold true, the more likely it is you reach your goal. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, some examples. I raise my voice to defend freedom of speech of others, right? That is the use of the devalue of freedom of speech in order to advance freedom of speech, right? 
I defend my country from aggression and punish people who invade, but I do not take the land of other countries when they invade because I don't become an aggressor in order to deter aggression. I defend aggression, right? The evil of aggression does not create the right of conquerors, right? Um, only but up to the point where it deters further aggression, meaning, hey, you know, I can understand if, you're, if you have some rationale that makes sense, right, <laughs> to take land in order to make, guarantee your future peace and prosperity, okay? But do you want to constrain that with, like, the facts, you want to constrain that with a moral calculus that actually um, informs and can limit you, right? Not an open-ended, you know, empire-seeking sort of sort of way that that can sometimes be calculated. Um, and then this should be subordinated to another principle, which is the next principle, which is peace over justice. Um, and that is, okay, so my instruction, my mental model that I think this actually applies universally, not just to here, but to everywhere is in, whenever you have a value set, you have to rank order them. It's called ordinal ranking. Um, this is another praxeological point. You have your, uh, you always have an internal set of values that you operate on psychologically and you, that those are unknowable, but you rank order them not by like denominated numbers, but just like number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. And you don't have them numbered, but you know that you like this kind of toothpaste more than you like this kind of toothpaste. And you like this kind of behavior over this kind of behavior. And you have, you're, you're constantly as a human being rank ordering your values and what you care about. Um, in my, my, my suggestion here is while there isn't a numbering per se, what we should do is have an ordinal ranking of peace always higher than justice as a culture. Why is that? Um, I suspect that in order to get, the justice in the long run, you need to have social peace. While value and justice first cannot bring peace, uh, in the long run, once you're stuck in the cycle of violence, the only way to break that cycle of violence is to eventually value peace first. Right? And I just don't see how you get out of that. So um, when Israel proposes land for peace and Palestine leaders decline, this is a problem. Uh, they care more about the righteousness of their cause than their children's future, than the peace that could be possible. Um, and that's like the fundamental crime, I think, right, is where you're saying, oh, um, what matters is how we, you know, everyone has an individual story here, I'm sure, right? I'm sure everyone's saying, my uncle was killed by IDF or my aunt was stepped on a landmine or I don't know. You know, the, the, everyone has a story here. And at some point, that individual has to rank, yeah, but my kids, at some point, they have to subordinate the justice of the past and quit living in the past to achieve a future where they can have peace and prosperity. And as long as they subordinate that to, but we can't ever have X, like X, some, some value that's way more important than that, how do you ever have peace? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, is there a factor on the Muslim side that is there a religious component that mandates a future without Israel? Is there, is there some component? Cause I, I you know, you hear, I've heard arguments that like um, the Palestinians are, are, are fighting a cause that basically requires that they remove like the Jews, for example, from, right. from, the world right it 
Do we know that to be a fact? Is that reality? Well, I... Because if that's the case, you have this sort of like overarching religious imperative and mandate that guides their vision of the future. So in that case, they may subordinate the the um, quality of life of their children's future to the righteousness of their religious mission. Right. And that's, and that's kind of part of my case is that that is a, that's a, that, that is what creates the cycle of violence fundamentally. And if you set an aim that is dealing with the beef that happened in 1948, at what point is this just the status quo? And there are more important things. Yeah, like, but I'm saying, what if it's not about here? the beef that happened in 48? What if it's about like, the things that I believe and hold most dear mandate that I achieve oh, a certain outcome. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I can see that on both sides, right. Israel too. Right. Sure. I'm sure there are stories of uh, Israelis who live in Israel now, whose great grandparents were, were there for settler versus, you know, non-settler violence in 1880. Right. Like, At some point you have to, on both sides of that, someone has to say, I care less about the past than I do about the future. And the civilizing aspect of that for both sides here is to subordinate your sense of justice in the present to your sense of potential for the future if you value peace. And I think that's the, the, way, the only way, and I've been racking my brain about it, and I might be wrong, and I would like to hear an alternative model, that you break outside of the Hatfield-McCoy problem, which is this a never-ending cycle of violence. Now you might say, hey, well, um, their religion is what guides them there. Well, you know, it isn't necessarily true that that interpretation of the religion is there forever, right? Or that it's even universal. That's one of the other kind of collectivist errors is that we say all of Islam thinks X. Well, sure. it's complicated, I'm sure. Um, and I'm not an expert enough in that area to just be able to say what that is. Yeah. Um, and I think that's more to my question, right? Yeah. It's like, is there a religious underpinning that that really is driving this versus I just want to right the wrongs of, of past generations. Right. Well, I would, I would not lie and say that there is none of that, right? There's no doubt that there are certain set sections of uh, Wahhabism, Salafism, um, or, or, you know, radical Shiite, you know, factions within Islam that require death to America and death to Israel. Right. Um, the, the more obviously tangible part of that is like, you know, we're victims of these two and that's why we hate them. The, the undercurrent is in order for the end times to happen, we have to kill all the infidels kind of philosophy. And I'm sure that exists, right? You don't have to deny that exists in order to reconcile that, that it does not represent the entirety of the people in Gaza. And it doesn't represent the entire Palestine in uh, the West bank or um, other uh, Palestinians. Well, it could in fact be a min like a vast minority potentially. Too. Yeah, I, I, I mean, don't know what the polling so suggests on that. The, but. the typical argument from like the right has been, well, you do an international polls and you'll have things like 70% embrace, you know, the use of force to repel um, Israel from Gaza, right? And, or create political liberty for Gaza and stuff like that. You'll get really high numbers of Muslims supporting that. And, and, you know, if you are aware of the facts on the ground and you see the suffering and you compel and you have that tribal identification with those people, you're much more likely to have that as your average person within that religion. I can understand that. If it was all Christians in, in Gaza, I think a lot of people could sympathize. Um, a lot of Christians right now have a lot of sympathy for the, what happened in Lebanon, Lebanon, sorry. Um, 
from the early 2000s where the Muslims were terribly persecuting um, Christians in that area, right? Understandably. Um, and they would, I'm sure they would advocate for their right to use force to repel them, right? So at what point though, like returning to it, at what point do we, do we say, you know, the status quo is the status quo is we need to defend against the worst elements and we need to seek peace first, more so than the justice of the, of, you know, for equalizing things in the past. And, and I think that only happens when we first prioritize our children and our children's future. Um, and I don't think any of this is determined is what I suspect. And, and that's the, um, the question, right? If you believe in the religion of, uh, either end of times Islam or end of times Christianity or, or Judaism that says, oh, this, this conflict has to happen. Then you, you gotta, you gotta be careful that you're not actually creating the conflict at some point, you know, rather than seeking peace. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they are. I'm just saying, just be careful. Like, think very carefully about what you say and what you do and how you articulate what you think to be the truth to make sure you're not actually perpetuating the violence. You're part of the solution instead. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to un the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Next one is kind of a twofer, but I think they're interrelated. Is the normalcy bias and timescale bias. And so when you're looking at these questions, um, we see nothing until we see it. In this case, it's something happening on the other side of the planet, right? Amazing moment in society where we can get on the minute updates. We know when things happened in, um, at the music festival within, you know, minutes to hours, right? We had live streams of people running through empty fields. I mean, just absolutely terrifying, but also incredible that we could know this quickly, you know, because of the modern industry and infrastructure and, uh, information infrastructure. So, uh, but keep in mind that some people take advantage of this, right? The time slice bias, de-emotionalizing it for a second. When Russia invaded Ukraine, everyone was surprised. Anyone familiar with it was not surprised, right? Both because of the buildup that was happening beforehand, but also because, well, gee, they've been expanding NATO, right? And that explanation became, you know, months later after people were no longer emotional about it, very quickly became, oh, okay, I can understand why, right? And, and, and we're able to fit it into that once they could see the larger time horizon. And when we talked in January, I explained the time horizon the time slice bias problem where you have a slice of time and we, we use that to post hoc rationalize what's going on into a narrative that allows us to sell what we're trying to sell. So in the case of the Warhawks, it was why we should give money to Ukraine. In the case right now, it's why we should invade Iran. Right. And yep. like, and like Iran is only, I mean, it's connected but it's not so tightly connected where it's quite obvious, right? I mean, we're not talking about aluminum tubes in a British dossier that says that they bought it in Africa and all the stuff that they made up for the war in Iraq, right? We're orders of magnitude away from that. But we do have almost like this really weird narrative coming out of Israel from the war hawks in Israel saying Hamas is ISIS. Why? Why? Hamas is ISIS. That doesn't make any sense. ISIS is a completely different group with completely different history. 
uh, Hamas has been around way longer. It makes way more sense to say ISIS is Hamas, <laughs> right? Because it precedes it, it informs it, and uh, it draws on it as inspiration. Uh, Hamas doesn't draw on inspiration from ISIS. ISIS is a failed state experiment that got annihilated. So why would you make that case? Well, it's it's playing on your on your time slice bias. You're aware of the Middle East right up until we destroyed ISIS, and then you forgot about it. This giant time frame until now, you know, ten years or something like that for some people, I bet. And then and then and then people are trying to say, oh, for the American here, Hamas is ISIS, and try to make this association. So you know why you need to go to war. And I'm like, ooh, man, that is a that's tough. That is a that is a really perverse manipulation. I think. Um, look, if Israel needs help, talk to you know talk to the State Department, right? I mean, I can understand if they're like they have a good mission and they have a thing that they want to do to try to bring people to justice and eventually get to peace. Awesome, right? I'm open to that. But like the kind of not to mention when you look at. Benjamin Netanyahu and his work to try to persuade the American public into the war in Iraq. Right. And you can find the speeches and there are they, he predicts a lot of great things would happen out of our invasion of Iraq that did not happen at all. Uh, and a lot of American blood and treasure was spilt for that. So, you know, we should, we should take that with a grain of salt and be aware of not getting drug into something out of our emotions. And lastly, the normalcy bias, how it plays into that. So like in the intermediate time, when it, the press isn't covering this, we have a assumption that everything's normal in Israel, Palestine. And um, it isn't. And that this came out of nowhere from a state of normalcy. Yeah. 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 We kind of see it like, uh, or, or, or we just have like a very low resolution picture of the conflict, right? We're like, oh yeah, they don't like each other. You know, like we're not thinking of it like every week there's a new story about a Muslim gang and a Christian gang fighting, battling it out in some neighborhood someplace or uh, um, a, Israeli police officer, like knocking an old lady over, right? Like that's like constant trickle of conflict and problems that are happening on the ground. And we just, we kind of get surprised by it. And so we got to be very aware of our bias there and our thinking, our modes of thinking around that and make sure that we're not brought into like, this has no context. This is completely and like, what would we say in Ukraine? Unprovoked. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the invasion of Ukraine is legitimate or at all, not a, not a terrible thing. And it doesn't mean that, that Hamas is legitimate or not evil, but it, it just means it happens for reasons. And it didn't just come from nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and understanding that doesn't mean you endorse it, AKA principle number two. So there we go. Seven mental models and, uh, how to think about it. And I hope that is helpful to folks. Um, Yeah. I have some media narratives that are going on right now that we might be able to play it to. Would you be cool doing that? Let's do it. All right. All right. So the Iran did it narrative is interesting. Or rather Biden did it because he let Iran have their money from a trade deal with South Korea. Okay. (laughs) Now, is this the $6 billion thing? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's let's dig into what that is. All right. So Iran has all these sanctions and they um, can sell oil for certain things within like this very controlled way within the sanctions external to their country. Can we back up one step and just kind of clarify sanctions, what they are, how they work? Oh, uh, basically America says, if you do any business with Iran, you can't do business with us. Would be a way to think about it. It's very 
kind of low resolution picture of it, but yeah. But but and, yeah, simple but but clear. Right. And trying to do this in a humanitarian way, we basically said it's like, hey, look, Iran, you can do you can sell oil to Korea, for example, in this case. And we won't pirate it. If you've been watching our episodes, you can get a look at our pirate episode. Dread Dread Pirate Biden. I think it's like <laughs> yeah. twenty six or something yeah. like that. Um but you can do this if you buy medical supplies with it and 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 food and stuff like that. Uh and the um but there was some question about it. And then those funds got held in, in Cutter, right? Yep. Uh, and there was a deal where those the, that deal got clarified for people who were held in Iranian prisons. So there were several, like, as a prisoner, not swap, but rather prisoner sale. That's a weird way to say it. But Very we, weird way to say it. But, know, but it's money for prisoners, right? We're giving them, we're, we're allowing them to have their money for their trade with Korea. Now, to be clear, I think we should normalize relations with Iran. I think our history with it is absolutely crazy. And we should do a whole explainer on Iran at some point because we've been doing this weird thing with them forever. Now, it might be indetractable at this point. They might just be our enemies forever because they want us dead. We should defend ourselves from them. Um, but we have yet to take any amount of responsibility for creating the Iranian revolution and the Ayatollah and this, all this current stuff. And we kind of gloss over it in order to create this like picture like we're victims. Uh, but we are not when it comes to Iran. And that's just true with the historical record. I don't know how you can look at it any other way. Um, but the Iran did it narrative is that about a day afterwards, Iran said, or the Wall Street Journal came out with a single story based upon anonymous resources saying that there was a meeting between Hamas and Iran weeks prior. And therefore, Iran had something to do with this. This is 24 hours after the first thing that happened. Everyone is still under complete surprise. So to me, that threw up a lot of red signs. Like, what is going on here? How could they possibly know this so quickly? How could someone, everyone have such low expectations of a consequential story that matters a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot with our foreign policy and just say, well, it's based upon two people who know. What is a quote? According to senior members of Hamas and Hezbollah. So... It's like, I don't, I think we need a higher standard of evidence before we go shooting bullets at Iran over this. Yeah. So, so, I mean, we talk a lot about anonymous sources and things of that nature. So how, how does this compare to some of those other situations? <laughs> yeah. Like Seymour, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's one of those things. It's like, if at minimum, if you're going to take, it requires a lot more further investigation before you should put it into policy for God's sakes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, as of yesterday, the DOD has no, quote, no evidence that Iran was involved, end quote. So there was just this one story that yeah. came out like the day after the attacks happened. Yeah. But and so is this narrative still trickling through the media? Is this, is this, you know, spreading through sort of like public awareness as an understanding now that Iran was involved? Uh, certain people on the right are basically making hay with it, understandably, right? Like a lot of people didn't like the Iran deal, right? I mean, it was billions of dollars for like six people, right? So it's like, there's like a proportionality concern and whatever. I'm not so much here interested in that, but the real question is, is like, what don't let's, let's not be such a hurry to attack Biden mm. uh, to, to make hay over this when we have a very elevated temperature moment here. And the last thing I want is to get into a war with Iran yeah. Right. I mean, like that would be a very bad thing. Well, this, this is an, another interesting question because I mean, I think you, you highlight a very fair point. 
that could be could have been used as a political football right to attack the biden administration on you know the the eve of an election year yep. but the consequences are so much greater however there are people that benefit from war there are giant corporations that benefit from war we call them the military industrial complex it it is real they are real companies right and they get a ton of money defense contractors get a ton of money if there's anyone that benefits from this stuff it is them mm-hmm. and, and they have a major power in dc and they have major power in dc and i'm sure also in israel as, as well mm-hmm. and, and around the world in the press and and we i mean like uh think tanks i mean the influence all over the place i mean these are some of the largest corporations in the world right With so billions of dollars to spend on propagandizing us and also our representatives to influence us one way or another so Maybe it's possible. Yeah. This is this conjecture, it, but maybe it's possible that that story was yeah fabricated in some way, or 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 at least like done with a much lower uh, journalistic standard than we, than than what we should require. Admit, okay, what I'm saying isn't that they shouldn't run the story; it's that we shouldn't make foreign policy decisions on a singular story based upon a anonymous source. Right. Same thing with Seymour. I don't recommend we. I don't know prosecute the president based upon his reporting alone. Sure. But it should beg a lot of questions about what's going on. We should be asking more questions about our control our our congressional control and security around the gang of eight and what that means for um uh accountability for intelligence and covert operations with the president it should beg a huge question about that because if true it'd be tremendously consequential yeah right um but But it doesn't mean that we 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 shouldn't take it even seymour no matter how big of a fan i am of him because he's an incredible his biography is incredible um we shouldn't take it as with just absolute truth what we need to do is verify the same way we did with the Watergate scandal and Abu Ghraib and all these things. Use it as a checkpoint for determining, okay, this has credibility. We should investigate it further yeah. before we make any decisions one way or another. Right. And so when, when the state department says we don't have any evidence of that, um, it could be that the state department's lying to us. Right? I mean, like that's possible or they could, they could be telling us the truth. Yeah. They have an incentive to lie to us, right? Because they don't want to look bad. Um, for not doing a better job of passing this intel on to the Israelis potentially, or it was, um, you know, the a legitimate, an error they're just trying to hide for, you know, and, and, and there's also like, I think you can criticize uh, Biden on all kinds of cases like this, right? Like that's okay. I think it's totally fair game. It's just, you know, let's, let's, let's chill out on the Biden owns all of this type story. I think it's just probably going too far and I don't want to put that guy into a situation after all the war spending that we've been doing into another one. Um, that'd be very bad. How, how has the posture in the Republican party changed regarding foreign Oof. policy and war as a result of this event? I think it's too early to tell because it seems like war was unpopular until Saturday. Well, I mean like, uh, and I do, I think, I think, okay. So if I can criticize the, the peace people real quick, like you know, a lot of libertarians fall into this category, right? Of look guys, like just because someone is in their emotions right now, doesn't mean they will be in a week from now. Right. So have some generosity with people as they process this. Right. I mean, you're looking at these images, it's understandable. People lose their mind. Um, and I, uh, so I try to, I kind of os- oscillate between that and thinking, oh man, the, the moment is over when it comes to the populist resistance to the war state. That said, uh, you know, 
right after Ukraine invaded too, there was a large moment of the American public and a lot of the right going, you know, maybe this is the one. And that's understandable, right? I mean, a sovereign nation invaded another sovereign nation. I can understand why people sort of step back, especially if they're not kind of fluent in the background, you know, or haven't been engaged in that. Um, it, it makes sense why people kind of get a little crazy for a bit. Um, but what I hope is that the better, better angels of our nature will exert themselves and our reason will come second, right? Think of it like if the entire country is a big brain, right? We're ultimately just like everyone else rolled by our passions, right? Um, we have the elephant and it's our emotions and we have our reason, which is the little guy on the elephant with a rope trying to tug those tusks one way or the other, right? And what I hope is that we can just keep tugging those things so that our reason eventually applies and we can assert in this space, especially among the right, a, you know, look, I'm not suggesting we change course here on supporting Israel. What I'm suggesting is a push for peace rather than a push for punishment at some point, because it has to happen. If we're, if we're going to claim to be the just, you know, if we're claiming to be in pursuit of justice in the long, we have to get to that. Um, another part of that, that I think is definitely um, uh, a media narrative that's riling people up and making it very difficult. Uh, that is, I'm very open to be true or false. I want to make this absolutely clear up front, which is the beheading babies story. So an Israeli state-funded media channel, I want, uh, oh, excuse me. These uh, sultry ginger ales, watch out. <laughs> Maybe not a pre-show beverage. <laughs> Post-show. Uh, uh, is Israeli uh, state-funded media, I... 24 uh, made the claim and it blew up on tw Twitter really huge when the uh, defense ministry, the foreign ministry um, um, tweeted it out. A single soldier made the claim at first, right? And so for 24 hours, it was very questionable about what was going on. Uh, Max Blumenthal, who's a very known uh, Palestinian activist uh, who runs the gray zone, uh, does some really great reporting, but obviously he's an interested party. So beware. Um, he's a little bit in my criticism of him, a little bit quick to like, not not condemn really terrible things by the Palestinian side, like it's surprisingly so. Um, and I think that's out of his sympathy. He's lived in Gaza. He's been around those folks. And, and like, I get it um, from his point of view. Uh, but I don't think he's objective, right? I don't think he's like stepping back enough. To be clear, is he, he's asserting that it didn't the, happen. That it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, well he's not, as, I'm, he's at least undermining the case. And he continued to this morning, right? So a day later, after the original stuff, he came out, he was on the Tim cast. He said, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's more of an action that's more done by Salafists. Uh, um, you know, ISIS doing it makes more sense than Hamas doing it. They're a different approach. Um, he exposed that the soldier who was originally testified for it was indeed, was a soldier who was um, a leader of a very radical, fanatical, fanatic uh, settler faction that has said really nasty things about the Palestinians. Like we got to wipe them all out type, type, type rhetoric. Um, one day later, the Israeli government confirmed, um, but there's still no real confirmation from like third party human rights groups, the UN stuff like that. Like that's, that's really when you want to look to, even though those organizations aren't perfect. And sometimes they're interested groups. We got to be careful not to just go on the word of a state funded media organization or a state government. Um, and then, uh, a lot of people saw this and they're like, okay, this looks like atrocity propaganda. It might not be, right? We shouldn't put it past. These guys did some terrible stuff, guys, right? I mean, 
you look at the you can look at the pictures now. And now one of the things is you look at pictures. You got to be sure that they're pictures from this conflict, right? I can't tell you how many war videos within the first forty eight hours, or even seventy two hours, were from other conflicts. So we're talking about two thousand eight, talking about other countries, other continents. The uh, the Google like reverse image search function is useful for understanding if it's what it's from, right? And thank God for community notes. I mean, it's oh, yeah. done a tremendous amount of work in, in, in ending the disinformation. The actual craziness is how X is getting all this criticism of it, of it when it's done more to like say, eh, and put it in a community notes than, than, than Facebook or YouTube or anyone else. Oh yeah. Uh, but anyways, atrocity propaganda, a uh, really important piece of just, just, just like keeping people understanding things clearly. Um, the Wikipedia page does a pretty good job kind of articulating it. Uh, the best uh, example is the Nayara uh, testimony in the Iraq war. Uh, in the run-up to the 2003 in, uh, invasion of Iraq, uh, stories um, appeared in uh, press in the United Kingdom the United States of a plastic shredder or wood chipper into which Saddam and uh, his wife fed opponents of their Ba'athist rule. They put people into a wood chipper, right? That was That a, was the claim? Yeah, right. Completely unsubstantiated stories. Another one in the original invasion of Iraq was uh, the Naira story, which is uh, a 15-year-old girl testified and said that they're taking babies out of incubators in the invasion of Kuwait and they're killing them, right? Repeating a story that actually was told about the Germans before World War One about them bayoneting children, right? That turned out to be completely false and turned out completely false in the Iraq War One case as well with Naira's story and, you know, it was it got people riled up and it made it a lot easier to support the desert storm. Uh, it turned out that Naira was actually the daughter of a uh, organization um, specifically organized by the Kuwaits to get America involved. And turned out it would be an outright lie. They were actually it was it was uh, they were picking the babies out, throwing them out, and then stealing the. Um, the incubators to bring them back to Iraq. Right. Right. And some like lane grab property grab thing is absolutely absurd when you think about it, but that's what got that happened. And it got press and it was very, it was mainstream covered as if true. So beware of that and this sort of stuff, beware of atrocity propaganda, but that doesn't mean this didn't happen because we shouldn't put it past the kind of people who are capable of doing the things that we know that they did. What's weird about it too, is it, what makes me think it isn't is the known things are so awful, right? The things we have video of are so tremendously bad. I don't see why they need it, right? But you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, you never you never know what they think, right? If if you're if you're Israel and you're really trying to get the whole world really gemmed up about this in order to support maybe other foreign policy goals that you have, you might say you might encourage a story that has a you know a, a faulty foundation. Sure. Um, I just have a quick question. Yeah. If someone's like, okay, is this real or is this not real? Like what, how do they, how does somebody go about trying to determine if it's trustworthy information? What, what are the mental models you use when you're looking at things to, to just to determine, yes, this has some credibility or no, this doesn't because we, we have so much evidence of the mainstream media, maybe not being overtly corrupt. I won't go so far as to accuse anyone of that, but specifically, being incentivized to uh, get clicks. And so yeah. maybe things are overplayed. Stories are run that don't have a lot of basis. The Iran story, for example, a singular article 
no other evidence yet. What are your, what are your frameworks? Yeah. So the first one is um, how strong the, the material evidence is, right? There's a huge difference between someone said versus like we have evidence of. So pictures, video, right. thing like stuff from right. the source. Material evidence. Uh, second is testimony from people who are um, neutral third parties or uh, don't benefit from things being true or false, right? That's why a third party authentication by the UN or by a human rights network or something like that to suggest that there is indeed a problem here, right? Um, and this is always, this is really always true when it comes to war. I mean, um, you know, it wasn't until later that we discovered that Naira was the, um, was, what was it? She was the daughter of a Kuwait ambassador to the United States. Hmm. <laughs> right. And we didn't know that at the time, right? So key information about the person, she doesn't have a last name. Why? Right. Like, that sort of question at the time was really critical and no one asked it because everyone was so outraged by the emotion of the time. So of course the first rule is turn on your thinking caps, reduce the, lower the temperature in the room. Uh, fear is the mind killer, right? Is the first principle. Um, and then second to that is the strength of the evidence, the strength of the witness. And then third, like the corroborating evidence, like how many other people are, are corroborating that. So if you have an anonymous source, you want to have an anonymous source that that comes from two different places that don't have the same incentive, right? So if you have an anonymous source with Hamas, Hezbollah doesn't really, it's it's strange that they have, because Hamas and Hezbollah agree on mission, but they're not the same group. One's Shia, one's Sunni. They have different aims um, for Palestine. So, um, and why are they talking to the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> right? Is it also a really interesting, difficult question that they don't account for. Right, Seymour does a much better job accounting for that sort of thing. Uh, he tells the full st the story up to it, but he doesn't release the source. Um, and then, lastly, like being careful about what you know when it comes to foreign policy is very different than what you can say. Right, so we we engage in some speculation here. We try to ground it, but we also say, hey, here's a thing to think about. Um, and then, you know, the, the the press when you're just doing fact press work and you're not doing interpretation, you should hold to a different standard. Right. So like the AP doesn't exist by the same standard that Mark Levin standards by. Right. Um, your interpretation of facts is second is is going to be you want to hold on a looser basis than straight up facts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so any claim that establishes new information that's particularly consequential, you want to hold to a higher standard than something that isn't consequential or isn't a new claim. Does that make sense? Yes. I suppose understanding what those standards are is another question. We, I don't want to go too far into the, you know, how you, how you determine that stuff. Cause that, that might be a whole podcast <laughs> in and of itself. Propaganda question. Yeah. yeah understanding yeah. what's true. I mean, right. cause this is a huge problem in, right. in the world today, which really even tough. It's becoming tougher to know if images are real because we have AI that can create very realistic images that are, might be really difficult to discern if they're real or not. Right. We came up with a, with a standard uh, that I like to use, uh, in the English common law system, which is means, motive, and material evidence, right? So does does uh, to apply it here? Uh, does Iran have the means to give them money? They have some means. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we have. Uh, the, do they have uh, the motive? They have a motive, yeah. And the material evidence is the question. And it's if it, and you can't convict without all three. Is the important way to think about that. Um, you want to make sure that you have a high standard for each. And then that standard isn't motivated by your biases, right? Which treats 
Iran and Hezbollah the same as Iran and Hamas, which are very different sets of relationships, groups, context, context that go back decades. So making sure that it really make, does make sense. Okay. So um, the another one of the news stories that came out of this is that uh, journalism critical of Israel in the conflict has been censored by X. Uh, and that's likely to do to the EU's Digital Services Act. Um, what we have is a bunch of examples from Max Blumenthal and others of basically tweets getting taken down uh, due to probably requests by the EU uh, for misinformation. Why would the EU want those tweets taken down? <laughs> uh, to fight him, <laughs> the spread of mis and malinformation. Keep in mind, malinformation means things that go against the narrative. Malinformation is, what's the definition specifically? <laughs> Misinformation is things that are well-intended but false, right? Malinformation would be things that go against the media narrative that the state thinks you should have, right? So misinformation is like the vaccine will give you cancer, right? Although there was some interesting stuff that came out this week about that. We'll talk about that some other time. Uh, the malinformation, or that, that's just like you misinterpreted a study, Right. Malinformation would be like intentional lying to the public in a way that, sorry, that's disinformation. Disinformation is intentional lying to the public. Malinformation is just saying things that go against the narrative, like, um, you know, maybe you shouldn't get a vaccine because you have herd immunity, right? Sure. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think that, I think that clarified. Oh, geez. I'll do it again. All right. <laughs> disinformation is intentional lying. Misinformation is accidental lying. Malinformation is information the state doesn't like. Much better. All right. Thank you for pressuring me to do it right. <laughs> I had it in there. I just needed the inspiration to get it out. That's what I'm here for. Uh, um, immediately, there was some immediate like, oh my goodness, Zelensky's going to lose his mind. Uh, that came true. Uh, there was our <laughs> RT article that basically came out and said, uh, Zelensky is uh, you know, very upset about Americans funding Israel, not him, and how Russia is really to blame for what went on with Hamas. Very interesting RT article. We'll link it. It's in the notes. Uh, and then, um, as of today, Trump said that Hezbollah is very smart. Uh, one of the things we haven't discussed for so far is there has been in the last two days fighting that's happened in the North from Lebanon from, uh, so while they're a very preoccupied Gaza South to the North, there is some fighting happening, um, in, uh, North Lebanon, um, uh, North Israel, Southern Lebanon, uh, that have to do with that's probably, um, Hezbollah, although I'm not sure what's been confirmed. Uh, Trump in some comments yesterday said, if, you know, Hezbollah, who's very smart, is taking advantage of the opportunity. He's not trying to plead. He's not trying. Obviously, obviously, a lot of presidential campaigns in the press were saying, oh, man, how dare he compliment Hezbollah? He's not trying to say they're the good guys. He's trying to say that this is this is a strategic move they're making that's smart. While they're preoccupied in the South, they're taking advantage of the opportunity to attack them from the North and potentially get, you know, Israel to concede or to have to sue for peace or something like that to put them in a pincer move that keeps them preoccupied. Right. I think this plays to the mental models, right? Just to acknowledge something does is not to necessarily agree with it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So those are some of the media narratives have come out of it. I, um, there's tremendous manipulation going on. Be very careful when consuming about this stuff. I can't tell you how many times I thought something was true in the last couple of days and then had to go back and re-edit and, and rework something. Um, there's Lindsey Graham, for example. Um, let's just do one video to react to because I feel like I just want to warn everybody about this madness here. 
We're in a religious no. war here. I am with Israel. Do whatever the hell you have to do to defend yourself. Level the place. Oh. So, like, we got to figure out how to call out that without being accused of legitimizing Hamas, right? Because that would also be a tremendous error. Well, if we're talking about um, playing into traps, right, and and committing atrocities that then inspire additional acts of terrorism against people that are committing their own acts of, of terrible, you know, crimes against civilians and, and leveling the place. That would be like exactly that. Mm. Exactly that. Mm. Totally. Yeah. And it's just that, that escalatory spiral that we've talked about before as well, similar to, you know, what, what could be, happening uh, between Ukraine and, and Russia, you know, and, and I think it's important to recognize too, that the people that lose in these situations are the civilians, right? And it's, again, goes back to differentiating the government of a country from the population of a country. You know, these are government people making decisions moving pieces on a chessboard, thinking about the world in a very different way from you and I. Mm. And the civilians are, are the ones caught in the middle. The civilians are the ones whose homes are destroyed and loved ones are lost. And not to say that, you know, there aren't, there aren't other costs as well, or that a guy like Lindsey Graham doesn't think about that, but I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking about. Clearly, that statement is is very pointed and designed to say something specific to certain people. Is he just talking to the base? Is he just trying to rile people up? What is he trying to point the United States towards particular action against Iran? What's he trying to do? I don't know. I mean, it seems like to me, yeah, all those things, right? <laughs> I think I think he has a a particular philosophy of foreign policy. That means he, um, he has to be on that that side of it. Like he he thinks if America isn't starting a war, we're doing something wrong at any given time. The guy called has been called for every us to engage everywhere on the planet. I think the Babylon Bee article was Lindsey Graham, Graham calls him for America to bomb the world. Something like that it's like it's a classic you know problem with that sort of philosophy. But I mean, the only thing that fights that the only thing that makes us not that is if we have people, everyday people on the ground, listen to this podcast or on the discord or on the discord, using your voice to say, wait a minute, American foreign policy should probably be determined first by what secures America. Israel's our ally. We want to support them, but they're the fourth most strongest military in the world who have a much greater incentive to care about their own security than we care about their security. If they need empowerment in some way, open to that. But the ultimate guide here shouldn't be what leaves us with the best sense of righteousness. The guide is what will bring us to peace. So the little babies in Gaza have a chance at a life too. And, um, and if, you, if you think that makes me, by saying that, uh, sympathize with Hamas, you've lost the plot. You've lost a core that makes us not just tribal animals, but humans with a thinking mind, able to see everybody as the child of God and worthy of dignity and a 
capability to make a life. Um, and that's not to condemn Israel. Absolutely. It's to say, we got to forge a future that's better than this for our kids sake. And that's been the dream of peace for two centuries. And we've got to revive that. We've got to breathe some life back into that. Not later, but now. I thought a lot about how we would talk about this issue. Um, and what I kept back coming back to is what could I say now that I can sleep at night knowing I said, think about what could be coming with people like Lindsey Graham in charge. And I hope that's something like that. We need to revive the dream of peace and call for it again because no one else is going to if, if you don't. Me speaking to me, me speaking to you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really easy to talk about doing the hard thing when times are good. Mm. Pretty hard to talk about doing the hard thing when times are hard. Right. So, David, thank you for all the work that you put in to understanding this topic as well as you do for being able to communicate it to me and to everyone that's watching and listening. Hopefully you guys all got value out of it. If you have questions, um, if you have pushback, uh, if you have anything you want to convey to us uh, that you'd like us to further look into, any of that, please do join the Discord, jump into the conversation. We would love to answer your questions on the show like we've done in the past and we will do in the future. And uh, we hope that you uh, continue to kind of help us on this mission towards peace because that's what that's what people need. That's what the world needs. Totally agree. And like, subscribe, all that stuff if you're new. Thank you. If not for us, for world peace. <laughs> Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com slash humanreactionpod. 